You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hello everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. On this episode, we chat with a young lady who just won her 12th Grand Slam title, but her first playing a new position. We then chat with a brand new World Mixed Curling Champion, and we finish the episode by previewing the first ever Pan-Continental Curling Championship. The second Grand Slam of the season took place last week in Grand Prairie, Alberta. It was a Tour Challenge, which meant that there was both a Tier 1 and a Tier 2 event with the Tier 2 winners earning an invite to a future Slam. The Women's Tier 2 event was won by Clancy Grandy and her team from Vancouver, who at this rate looked like a team that we will see in several Slams in the coming years. The Men's Tier 2 event was won by Corey Dropkin of the U.S., it was a second consecutive win in the Tier 2 event by Dropkin, having also won the last time the event was held in 2019. The Tier 1 men's event was won by Tima Dean, who won the semifinal and the final playing three-legged after skip Nicholas Adin injured a knee. And the women's Tier 1 event was won by Team Holman, who defeated Kerry Anderson in the final. My first guest this week is the second on Team Holman, Emma Miskew, who won her 12th career slam title in Grand Prairie, but her first at her new position. Emma, I realize that winning slams is important and that it's good money, but I have to ask, did you take more pleasure in winning the slam on the weekend in Grand Prairie or of winning that race against your three teammates on what looked like motorized plush tours, if I can explain it that way, at the shopping mall in Grand Prairie following your win on the ice? (laughs) Um, Definitely the slam win, but uh, that was fun. It was uh, something that Tracy had just seen where she was going into the mall to check something and made a joke about going and doing that if we were in the final. And so we're like, okay, well, let's do it then. And um, we weren't there very long, but uh, I, when I first saw the picture, I didn't know that they would actually be big enough to hold our weight, but it was kind of funny to race around in them. Now, obviously, a very good week for you at the Slamming Grand Prairie, uh, Emma. Was there a point uh, during the week when you got the sense that you had a great chance of playing deep into the weekend? Those events are always so tough. Um, All the teams are um, such excellent caliber. So it's always one game at a time. You can be playing really well and then um, get go up against someone who just makes one more shot, uh, just a little bit more precise than you do. And then your runs over. So we don't really think that far ahead, but we, um, we thought that we were, we're, things were coming together a little bit more and um, it's, it's a big change for uh, not like all of us, but Rachel in particular, uh, it's a big change. Like going from being in the house and calling the game to being a sweeper is not an easy thing to do. So we've been, reminding ourselves this whole time to be patient with ourselves and with each other and um, it's going to take a little bit of time to settle in here and um, know where everyone has to be and um, what our communication needs to look like but uh, but this last event is starting to get everything starting to fall into place and I mean um, the everyone's working really hard so it's not about that it's it's more just figuring out the the new dynamic of being in all new roles that we're used to. Now, Emma, can you take me back to last season and discuss the process that led to you and Rachel and Sarah reaching out to Tracy Flurry to join the team? Once you learned that Joanne Courtney was going to step away from the sport, did you begin by looking at players that could fill in her spot in the lineup at lead, or was the goal to switch things up from the outset? 
Um, I think our original thought was that we would be looking for a lead. And um, just as we found out more information about who was available uh, at the end of last season, uh, we found out that Tracy might be available and then it was, it piqued our interest and we talked a little bit about what that could look like. So we, we didn't really go into after Joanne had decided to step away, we didn't really go into the search for new player thinking concretely, this is going to be a lead we're looking for or a different position. We were just looking for the best fit for our team. Um, And when we found out that she was available, we thought that we couldn't pass on that opportunity to reach out and see if she wanted to join us. Uh, She's a fantastic player, a great person, a great teammate. Um, Like her energy is fantastic. So uh, what she brings to the team, uh, we thought we we couldn't uh, take a pass on that. We had to go for that, and um, we knew that that would make our team look quite different than what it had been. Um, but it was a welcome change. So uh, that's that's how th- we went about that. So Emma, tell me about moving to the second position after so many years at third. Did it force you to change your off-season training schedule a little because you'd now have to sweep two extra rocks per end? Or was it more having to work on the mental side of things to adjust to your new role after some so many years uh, in the house with Rachel? Um, for off-season training, I definitely, I've always, I mean, been tried to be the strongest that I can. I still was sweeping four important rocks before, but um, I, I, uh, I, got uh i've been training at a different facility and um i'm really liking the training that i was doing over the summer and i felt that i made pretty good gains so the sweeping hasn't been that big of a transition sweeping those extra two rocks an end and i've been liking being a part of that it's uh, a nice welcome change it's um i when you do the same thing for so many years i obviously loved playing third and playing third for rachel and calling line but it's nice to have something else to focus on and some a new challenge to embrace. And I've been really liking that part of the game and trying to put rocks in the right spot. Um, and as for the shot making part, well, there's not a whole lot of training over the summer that could be done by that. I do notice a little bit of a difference in that I don't see as many lines as I used to um, playing third and holding the broom for Rachel. Um, but uh, it's, we're starting to, learn the shots are quite similar and uh, just trying to settle into the position but um and from a shots like a actual the shots that i play perspective it's not that different uh but uh you it's a little bit different in that i don't see everything the same way as i did when i was playing third now you just provided me with a great segue to my next question emma a third is typically much more involved on the strategy side during games whereas the role of a second on most teams is much more focused on sweeping and setting up ends has it been a huge adjustment for you mentally out on the ice the fact that you are no longer involved in the strategic side of the game nearly as much as you had been for the bulk of your career playing third for rachel uh, no, I think that, I mean, Rachel and I have played together for so many years that our strategy is quite similar at this point. There were a lot of times in the past, or not a lot of times, it was most of the time before she'd even call the shot, I'd be cleaning the path knowing that that was the shot she was calling. Uh, so from that angle, it's not, the conversation part isn't there. The, the difference in the conversation is that I'm not the person standing with her at the other end, caddying her on the lines of, how to throw a rock or what I think the line will do. Um, that's Tracy now. So I'm, I'm caddying her in a different way than I was before. So that's where there's a little bit of a, a change that we're learning together and getting used to the lingo from 
the front end position and what the speed's doing here and what we think the line will do and giving all the information, just not, it's just different than it was before. And it's, it's great. We're learning quickly and figuring out the um, right terminology and the right communication style, but it is still learning. So um, I think that it's come, it's, it's quick. And that's like with all the work that we're putting into this, um, we're able to learn quickly and have, conversations and debrief and make sure that all the information that's being shared is good and helpful. Uh, but yeah, that's the biggest part, I think, is just that I'm not the person standing with her in the house um, sharing what I think the shot is going to do before she leaves to go throw it. And um, that's, I think, that where <laughs> for her, it's it's quite different. And then for me at the other end, making sure that I give all the assistance that I can before she goes to throw and make her feel as confident as she can. So Emma, when I spoke to Tracy for a few moments after one of the games at the Slam in North Bay a couple of weeks ago, she told me that she was in the process of changing her release so that it would be more similar to the release that you and, uh, and uh, Rachel and uh, Sarah have. She told me it was a work in progress, but by all indications, now that you've won a Slam, I guess it's going pretty well. Your team's releases are spoken about almost endlessly. Could you provide a brief explanation of what changes Tracy would have had to make in order to uh, make her release and her delivery much more closer to what you and Rachel and Sarah do? Her release actually wasn't as far. <laughs> like we didn't, we didn't think uh, when we went first practice, we went and looked at all our throws. And I mean, early in the season, um, <laughs> we're just, you're just getting back onto the ice. It's always, it's not always perfect, but uh, her the way her rock ran down the sheet wasn't actually that different from ours. So it wasn't a huge change, but we basically just tried to make sure that our rocks don't take an early turn and start curling early. Um, we try to just manage the break point a little bit by keeping them a little bit straighter. Uh, but we also have the ability to throw it softer if we need to, depending on the ice conditions. So um, it wasn't a huge change. She just, we were just trying to all make sure that all of our rocks were running similar and that's taking like, maybe my rocks back a little bit to run up, to curl a little bit more and hers to curl a little bit less, but it, that's how every team kind of operates and trying to get their throws as close as possible. So it's easier to put the broom down for everyone. So I'm a lot was made on the weekend about your lineup being referred to as quote unquote weird on one of the games that was broadcast nationally. Uh, in this case, weird seems to be a good thing because you actually won the slam. Now I realize that you and the rest of the team thought Tracy would be a good fit. Otherwise you wouldn't have asked her to be on your team. But I'm just wondering if there was a little bit of apprehension on your part, because honestly, as good of a player as Tracy is, as talented as she is, as focused as she is, you really don't know how a team's going to mesh until you hit the ice. So I'm just wondering if despite everything seemed to be pointing in the, in a good direction, I'm wondering if you had any apprehension when you stepped on the ice for the first time with Tracy, hoping that it would all work out. Well, I, like I mentioned earlier in this conversation, um, I think that we knew that there would be a learning curve to all doing something different. And I know that we put a lot of work into trying to figure out to make that as seamless as possible, but there's only so much you can do until you're thrown into the moment. Um, and like I said, the biggest change for, I think anyone on the team is Rachel going from tw like 22 years of having me stand with her in the house and her calling the game um, and going to throw at me to throwing at somebody else is a huge change. Uh, that's the communication in the house before she goes to throw, the, the line calling, everything is very different for her. And she's sweeping, so she's not seeing all the lines anymore. There's, um, for everyone else, we all had to make 
a pretty big move, but hers is definitely the biggest. And the fact she's just jumped into that and embraced it, I think we've all been very impressed. Um, she's a great sweeper. Um, she's she's learning her her new role as a, a sweeper and throwing lassie. She has a very hard job right now. So, um, I mean, we totally embraced this weird comment, but um, we we would have hoped that um, everyone, especially like, and especially people who've curled before, know that things are going to take a little bit of time. That's only our third event this year. So um, we, and one of them, well, like I'm not even going to count the, the points for the event because we only got two games because it was single elimination, but we, we've played a handful of games together this year and there's been so much good to come out of it. And yes, there are some communication moments that could be tightened up, but we are trying very hard to learn from all those moments and, and figure out where everyone needs to be and what everyone needs to say um, to get the most out of everyone on the ice. So I think that uh, we are loving playing together and uh, we're really enjoying each other's company. And it's been very fun this year so far. Uh, Tracy's been a really good fit in coming in on the team. The team dynamics are fantastic. So um, anything that's been said, um, that's just someone's opinion of the team and not actually what's happening on the team. And that's fine. That's what they're there for. They're there to give their opinion, but um, for us, we everything's going great on our end, and we're just trying to really narrow in on um, tightening up on all that communication and trying to be good at time management because it's a little different with the when you have someone who's not throwing last calling the game. Just from a time perspective, they're down at the other end a little bit more. So everything's <laughs> a work in progress, and I mean. Um, now apparently we've started a stay weird hashtag, so we'll just roll with that and have fun with it. And I mean, if, if we're, if we're weird, then that's what we want to be. So that's all good. <laughs> and finally, Emma, since we were just talking about the hashtag that came out of your time in Grand Prairie about the whole weird thing, uh, you personally have gotten much more active on social media over the past few months. I noticed showing a side of your personality that I think most people outside of your inner circle and maybe some of the people in the sport that know you very well didn't really know much about. Was being more active and creative on social media a conscious decision on your part, or was it simply a case of you starting to scroll through a TikTok and deciding one day that, boy, I can I could probably do this? <laughs> well, um, in all honesty, I have a little bit of help and some experts that know social media a little bit better than I do, and they are great at just telling me the, the newest trends and um, certain fun ones that I can do so I don't have to actually do the, the research and which ones to do and I mean yeah I, I think I was just trying to have a little bit of fun with it it's curling can be appeared as being very serious on tv and I mean as you've seen uh with the smile more tiktok um I mean we're a little tired of hearing to smile more while we're competing because we don't feel like the men get that same those same comments that they need to smile more while they're competing so um I think we can all have personality and also be competitive athletes on the ice and we can um, not smile on the ice and we can be right in the moment and a high level, high achieving competitive athletes and still be human off the ice. So I wanted to kind of show that a little bit is that even though on the ice, I look intense and I might look angry and I'm not, I'm just, that's, that's my face. Um, I also am a human and I'm a real person and I, that's who this is who I am off the ice and I'm kind of goofy and <laughs> like I'm I like to laugh and I we laugh so much off the ice as a team and I just wanted to show that a little bit and also 
um, it's just a kind of a fun way of growing curling and um, TikTok's huge right now. Uh, it's not my comfort zone. I've, it's definitely become a little bit more comfortable in the last six months, but um, putting yourself out there like that is not my comfort zone. And I just, I thought, you know, I may as well try this and women's sports are, are growing right now and it's a big thing. So um, yeah, just trying to, to do, do my part for this great sport that we have. In 2006, my next guest won the briar and represented Canada at the World Men's Championship where he lost the final to David Murdoch of Scotland. Fast forward 16 years and Jean-Michel Menal found himself facing Scotland in another World Championship final, this time at the World Mixed Championship. The difference? This time Menal and his team are coming home with a gold medal. Please note that the interview with Jean-Michel Menal concludes with two questions en français. So Jean-Michel, it's been a few days now. How does it feel when you hear someone referring to you as a world champion? Uh, well, it's only been a couple of days, so I would uh, say that it kind of feels a bit unreal right now. Uh, but at the same time, it's uh, no, it's satisfactory and it's 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 an humbling experience to be called a world champion. In the championship final, Jean-Michel, uh, your team beat Scotland, skipped by Cameron Bryce, uh, a player that uh, some curling uh, fans will recognize from having played in juniors and also on the World Curling Tour. Uh, the two teams were tied 4-4 midway through the game. Then you slowly started to take over the game by stealing single points in the 5th, 6th and 7th ends. What was the key in the second half of that game? Did you start applying more pressure on the Scots, or was it a case of your team simply making more shots? Well, the first half of the game, quite honestly, we, we, we were overmatched. They were really playing well and placing their rocks in the proper position. So I kind of felt we we're always running after them. Uh, we were able to get a nice deuce in the fort. was kind of a cheap deuce. So that put us, no, uh, tie game after four. And during the break, we... When we had our, our, our talk, we said, well, you know, hasn't been our greatest game so far, but we're, we're tied up uh, midway through the game. So we felt comfortable uh, uh, moving forward to the uh, second part of the game. And I think, you know, probably the game changer was in the fifth end. They were pretty much lined up for two or three. And on my first rock, uh, uh, I made the decision to go all in. There was a, a double raise, double takeout available. If I miss it, it was pretty much ball game. But my calculation was that, no, probably we were going to give up a deuce anyway. So we were still behind the eight ball. So went for the shot, and it worked out perfectly. And from there, I kind of felt that the, moment, the momentum really started shifting uh, in our favor. So basically, Jean-Michel, what you're saying is that the turning point of the World Championship final came down to one of those shots that you have become famous for in your appearances at the Briar and other events. Well, yeah, I guess I still had another shot off my sleeve, <laughs> in my sleeves. Now, you defeated Scotland in the final, uh, Jean-Michel, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. Was there a part of you that may have been a little more excited that it was Scotland you got to beat in the final after you had lost to Scotland in your only other World Championship final of your career, the Men's Worlds in 2006, when you lost to David Murdoch? Well, I would say the answer is yes, like... Uh... We finished our semifinal game before the other semifinal between Scotland and Sweden. And when Scotland won in overtime, I kind of realized, man, playing my second world final, and it has to be against the country that defeated me in 2006. So there was a added motivation in trying to uh, level things out with uh, this, the, the, the Scottish uh, uh, delegation. 
So, Jean-Michel, uh, Canadian teams typically are viewed as favorites when they uh, go to international uh, curling events, especially a mixed or a mixed uh, doubles. Uh, and then yet, when you got to the event in uh, in Scotland, you lost the second game of the round robin to Finland. Sometimes losing a game like that early on in a big event uh, ensures that you are even more focused moving forward. Is that perhaps what happened to your team at Worlds? Because... To be perfectly honest, you've won every other game uh, of the week uh, in uh, Scotland, so it certainly seemed like after that loss, you found your game and you were totally focused on the the task at hand, which was winning a world championship. Yeah, well, when I looked at the, uh, when we were provided with the schedule and I looked at the schedule, I wasn't a big fan of our schedule uh, because the top three teams with, with, with Canada, obviously, we had to face them in the first four games. So we played New Zealand the first game, and then right the second game was Finland. Uh, we beat them eventually in the quarterfinals, but quite honestly, they were one of the best teams over there. And they probably, you know, if, if they defeat us in the quarterfinals, I think they probably would have won uh, gold. They were really, really good. Then we had Denmark and Korea, which was very good. So uh, we knew that early on in our round robin, we really needed to be really sharp because uh, we were playing our tournaments in the first four games. Now, your team had a lot or has a lot of experience in big moments on the curling ice, Jean-Michel. You played in 11 Briars and in Men's Worlds, while Marie-France Laroche and Annie Lemay played in 10 and 9 Scotties, respectively. How much does past experience at big events like the Scotties and Briar help when you get to an event like the World Mix where you have the pressure of representing Canada? I think it really did help. Uh, Annie mentioned uh, to someone who was talking to her uh, after the final that, and, and she was right, like the panic button was uh, not an option for us during the whole tournament. So even if we were not at sometimes playing our best curling, we were able just to regroup and say, okay, we move forward. The last couple of events or the, you know, the last end wasn't very good. There's nothing to panic. We will refocus and be able to move forward. And I think that comes with experience. Maybe having been younger, uh, you panic because you know you don't have as much experience. So maybe the, you know you can hit the panic button a little er, uh, faster if you want. Uh, but we were really good in uh, controlling ourselves and just staying focused on the task we had to do. One of the interesting things that happens at a World Mixed, uh, Jean-Michel, is that you get to play against some quote-unquote non-traditional curling nations. In your case, you played games against India, Portugal, Hong Kong, and Slovenia. I know it's a competition and that you're focused on the task at hand, but it must have been nice to be at an event and see players from so many different curling uh, nations play the sport that you love. Quite frankly, it's amazing. Like when I played in 2006 at the World, it was 12 countries back then, so you play against... No, 11 other countries and you come here and you know you see people with all the different flags of different country like 30 the opening ceremony was 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 quite interesting seeing all the flags on the ice and said wow that's amazing curling is really 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 growing and and it was great and like you mentioned we have that we had the chance to play against a team from india they were super excited to play against us and uh, i had a nice chat with their second and he said the night before he didn't sleep all night he was so excited to play against us so uh, it makes it interesting when you stepped away from the men's game a few seasons ago did you think your career as an elite curler was over or was there always an idea in the back of your mind that you still wanted to compete at a high level, whether it was mixed in mixed or mixed doubles or in a few years, perhaps even the senior level? Uh, well, when I retired, like 
it was not really a retirement. It was just I was taking a year off. And I kind of realized that uh, after taking that first year off that, no, I, I think I was done with man's curling. I didn't necessarily enjoy as much leaving on weekends and uh, letting Annie at home with the, with the two kids running around. Uh, so felt more comfortable staying at home uh, with her and helping her with the kids. Uh, but I still continue playing like in leagues and little bond spiels with friends. So uh, the competitive uh, player in me was still there. And uh, that's why uh, we decided to ask Marie-France and Yann, they would like to uh, play curling because we don't study a whole lot there, them being in uh, Quebec City and Annie and I and get snow close to Ottawa. So we figured so that would be a, a nice opportunity to be able to see our, uh, no, see each other and play some uh, high level uh, curling at the same time. And it worked out perfectly. We're able to win the provincials, the national, and now the worlds. Uh, so I think the competitor is in me still there. And uh, no, I'm looking forward. I'm 46. There will be turning 47 in uh, January. So I would say my next objective will likely be to try uh, the seniors. So your team won the right to represent Canada at the 2022 World Mixed when you won the Canadian Mixed almost a year ago in November of 2021. Was there a part of you, Jean-Michel, uh, that was concerned that you might not be able to find your mojo at Worlds almost a year after winning Nationals? No, I was not very afraid uh, uh, by that. I've known Lanyan and Manny France and Annie for, well, obviously Annie, uh, for, we've known each other for years. Uh, played in the mixed juniors with Manny France and Yann, and I knew they would be putting the necessary efforts in uh, being well prepared to come over here. Uh, but honestly, the only thing I was really worried is we didn't get the okay from the World Curling Federation until uh, late May, early June that the event would take place. I was still a little worried that maybe uh, after a COVID wave at 10, 12, or 13, that maybe it might be canceled. So that was the only element that was more worrying me uh, more than the, uh, the, uh, the performance we would be offering on the ice. Parle-moi un peu, Jean-Michel, d'avoir eu la chance de compétitionner au niveau international à l'âge de 46 ans. Est-ce que tu t'es permis de prendre le temps d'apprécier les petits moments de cette expérience malgré le fait que tu étais concentré sur le curling et sur le fait que tu représentais le Canada? Absolument. On en a profité au maximum. On est arrivé une semaine avant le tournoi pour euh, avoir la chance de pratiquer un peu sur les glaces du curling d'Aberdeen en préparation à l'événement. On a voyagé un peu, on est allé voir les différents sites touristiques là, en Écosse, les châteaux, le Loch Ness. Là, on est à Édimbourg présentement. Euh, pouvoir faire ça avec des amis comme Eric, notre entraîneur, Yann, Marie-France, puis ma conjointe, Annie. On essaie de tout mélanger ça ensemble pour qu'on puisse vraiment en retirer une satisfaction maximale à notre retour. C'est qu'on ait gagné, c'est comme la cerise sur le Sunday, mais on voulait que le tout soit une expérience voyage et compétition. Euh, qui puissent nous laisser des souvenirs à tout jamais. Puis, euh, ben, comme je mentionne, de gagner ou de remporter la compétition en plus de ça, c'est la série sur Sunday. Et pour terminer, Jean-Michel, ta victoire au championnat de curling mixte du Canada en 2021 est survenue 20 ans après avoir gagné ce titre pour la première fois en 2021. Pourrais-tu décrire la grande différence que tu as vue dans la discipline de curling mixte entre 2001 et 2021? Oui. Euh, ben, un des éléments que j'ai remarqué énormément cette semaine, c'est la quantité de jeunes équipes qui participent à cet événement-là. Là. Euh, plusieurs des équipes de la Suisse, 
Euh, il était quand même assez jeune. Les Suédois, c'est deux équipes qui sont spécialisées dans le mix double, qui jouent ensemble. Ce sont des jeunes, ils sont extrêmement en forme. L'équipe qu'on a jouée en finale, leur troisième avait 19 ans. <rire> Donc, beaucoup de jeunes équipes, j'ai l'impression que pour plusieurs pays, c'est comme un tremplin vers le prochain niveau. Là. Ça leur donne une espèce d'exposé au niveau mondial pour par la suite euh, peut-être faire la transition vers les compétitions masculines, féminines ou même le double mix. Euh, donc, un des éléments, c'est ça que j'ai vraiment remarqué, c'est à quel point il y a plusieurs équipes qui sont vraiment très jeunes euh, qui participent à ce, 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 cette discipline-là, si on veut. My final guest this week is an Olympian who has spent the past several years becoming one of the more respected voices in international curling as a broadcaster at both the Olympics and various World Curling Federation events. Hans Fraunlob joins me to discuss the first ever Pan-Continental Championship taking place next week in Calgary, where five spots at both the men's and women's World Championships will be at stake. So Hans, from what you've heard from your sources, what were some of the main reasons why the World Curling Federation created a Pan-Continental Championship to replace the Pacific Asia Championship? Well, I think the main reason, there's been a debate forever about the uh, 13th qualifying place into World Championships between, at the time, Europe and the Americas and uh, uh, Pacific, the former uh, Pacific Asia region. And... Um, The other thing that's been happening is that there's been an incredible growth of participation um, in the Pacific Asia zone. Uh, you've got uh, countries from the Middle East, uh, from Africa, uh, now competing. And the competitive, uh, the competitive growth, as well as the competitive imbalance, uh, I think made World Curling really take a relook at the whole scheme um, for the teams. And there was also some real inaccuracy teams qualified themselves to get to a world championships in Americas. There was an America's challenge in the other regions. There was a play down. Anyways, long story short, after some analysis and some debate around how the world could be carved up from fine uh, point of view, uh, it landed on bringing together the America zone and the uh, Pacific Asia zone into the pan continental zone. And I'm a huge fan of the result. Um, I think this is going to be, It's going to be creating a new event. Uh, the new event uh, will gain prestige over the years. Um, in the future, I'm sure we're going to look at the Pan-Continental Championship in the way that if you're a football fan, you're looking at the CONCACAF or the Euro or the uh, um, uh, the Asian region qualifiers for a World Cup in, in football. It'll be the same for curling. So every country starts from the same spot. You've got A, a divisions and B divisions in, in both regions. And there's clear pathways for every country to qualify for the world championship. So I like it. And that's really part of the rationale. It's really been leveling up the competitive balance and recognizing that there has been a huge participation growth in world curling. As was reported last month, uh, Hans, China will not be represented at the Pan-Continental Championship. But can you provide a little bit of backstory as to why the decision was made uh, with regards to uh, not sending Chinese teams to the event in Calgary? Well, it's all been a little cryptic, and it's been, you know, it's taken a lot of folks by surprise, although really, if you're looking at the way that China's managing COVID, it's probably not a surprise that uh, uh, Chinese teams are being um, withdrawn from events. Um, so I don't have any inside goss on that. There's a lot of speculation, but I won't speculate on uh, on on other reasons. But let's presume that it's, it's travel-related and COVID-related that is the reason. 
but the result of that, um, it has thrown uh, qualifying paths to the world championships wide open. So what was already going to be an exciting pan-continental championship now has got some extra intrigue because with near certainty, you can say that there will be a women's team qualifying that will be playing at the women's world championships for the first time ever. And there will be potentially the same on the men's side. So it makes it interesting. Um, it is sad not to see China there, uh, but it is the first year after an Olympic Games. It's not generating qualifying points for Olympics. And you often see some uh, new combinations or new representatives or kind of weird things happening the first year after an Olympics. And uh, I think China was, China's withdrawal is probably the, the weird thing of, uh, of this event. Hans, how was the uh, pan-continental event received by countries such as uh, China, Korea, Japan, and all of the other Pacific Asia countries who had gotten used to uh, competing in the Pacific Asia Championship uh, every year, uh, and now they would be competing with a bigger field, also including Canada and the United States? Well, from the curlers that I've spoken with from uh, from all countries, they they're all pretty excited about the new format. Uh, most teams, not all of them, but most teams are in North America competing in the in the lead up to a, a world championship qualifier anyways. Um, so they're used to playing against opponents um, other than the ones that they'd be playing off against to try and get to worlds. And I think the other thing that excites the athletes is they know that there's, you know, a bigger event means um, more interest from fans, potentially more interest from broadcast. You know, a bigger event is more fun to play uh, in as an athlete. So uh, I think all of the athletes are really excited about the opportunity of this new event uh, becoming bigger than either of the predecessor events were. I mean, the America's Challenge, let's be honest, um, it's in a curling club generally, and it's a play down, and, and, and it doesn't really generate a lot of interest. And um, in the Pacific Asia region, you know, it's well um, viewed on television, but fan interest, spectator interest is, you know, marginal. So this new event, we think, is going to be really interesting for the fans. You're going to see good games, good teams, new faces and uh yeah i think the players are excited about playing in the first one and many more to come in the future so in the women's event uh, hans is it fair to say that the three playoff spots might come down to a battle between four teams team fujisawa of japan team anderson of canada team peterson of the united states and team ha of korea do you believe that the three playoff spots will come down uh, will come from within that group or do you see another team with potential to perhaps upset one or two of the big four to earn their way into the playoffs well, you'd have to pencil those four teams in as the strongest teams in the field. There's no doubt about that. And um, it'll be really interesting to see how uh, Korea performs. It's a very young team, but we've seen so much skill coming out of Korea and a lot of depth. So I'm expecting them to play well. It'll be interesting to see how they rise to this occasion. Um, but those are the playoff teams. But, uh, you know, we need to remember that the playoffs are important. Obviously, you want to win the championship. Uh, but what these teams are really playing for is to be in the top five and top five teams will advance to the world championship. And so there's a competition within a competition. I think those four teams, you would reasonably say, um, have got a very high chance of being in the top five. Uh, that fifth spot is wide open and uh, you can make a case for uh, Jess Smith from New Zealand. Uh, you can make a case for West Hagen from Australia 
Um, Hong Kong has finished top four. Uh, Kazakhstan has medaled. So any one of those teams could be grabbing that precious fifth spot and making it to their first uh, women's world championship. So I'll be watching that competition within a competition just as closely as I will in uh, the teams that uh, reach the top of the podium. Out of those second-tier uh, teams you just mentioned, DeHans, is there one team or player in particular that you believe might be in a good position to surprise people at the Pancontinental Championship in Calgary? Well, I'm going to be accused of some bias here, but I'm going to steer you to an incredible story, and that's uh, Jess Smith, who's the skip of Team New Zealand. Uh, Jess, I think fans are going to enjoy her play. She's a fantastically talented player, but Jess has also overcome um, some incredible uh, personal difficulties. Uh, she's a cancer survivor, has recovered, um, and is now leading Team New Zealand into this championships, um, uh, has made a, a, a recovery from her cancer and uh, is back to full strength. And this team is excited. And Jess, I've seen her play since uh, she started playing. And she's always been an athlete. I thought this had the X factor, you know, as a shot maker that can make a shot at the big times. Um, Jess has got that. So uh, I think that'll be a team to watch. Um, I mentioned a boyer from uh, Kazakhstan. She's a good player as well. So that's part of the fun for me of these international events, especially the year after an Olympic cycle, uh, because it's like getting a preview into the future. You're seeing some teams for the first time that, you know, there's talent there. Uh, they may not win the event on that uh, occasion, but you know, they're going to be back. So Team Hall of Korea will be playing in their 10th event of the season at the Pancontinental Championship in Calgary, which is roughly twice as much as most of the top teams in the world have played so far this year. If you were part of the Korean group, Hans, would you be a little concerned that Team Ha might arrive in Calgary a little tired? Or at their young age, do you anticipate them being able to compete on adrenaline if they have to, and also benefit from the fact that having competed in so many events, their game is probably in a good place right now? Oh, I think you kind of landed on it, Frank, the latter, really. I mean, uh, you know, they're in their early 20s. <laughs> you know, they will, they'll, they're happy to play a lot. They'll play a lot. Uh, they enjoy playing a lot. And, uh, yeah, I think that extra play is probably going to help them. I think other um, other teams might still be figuring things out, although by this time point in the competition, you're well into the season. You should be in uh, good competitive shape. But, you know, I don't think playing a lot is a disadvantage when you're um, when you're young and you've got big ambitions. So, yeah, I'm expecting them to, per to perform well. Now, moving on to the men's event, Hans, the men's field looks like it's a little bit top-heavy and then wide open. You've got Team Gushu representing Canada and then Team Dropkin fresh off their win at the Tour Challenge Tier 2 Slam event uh, just last weekend. Um, and then we'd usually go to Japan and Korea as the favorites to fight for that third playoff spot. Can you speak about the Japanese and Korean men's teams and whether another country might play its way into the conversation to be that third playoff team? Yeah, it's, we talked about the women's field, you know, the fifth place being wide open. And I think in the men's field, uh, it's a very similar thing that it's, if, if anything, it's even more wide open with uh, with the absence of China. And the Anixawa from Japan, you know, if, if you had to ask me now, uh, between Japan and Korea, who do you think will place higher? I think Yanagasawa has got uh, Tsuyoshi Yamaguchi in the lineup at third. Um, I would say has got more experience on, on the larger occasion. Um, whether that translates into performance, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Jung um, Byung-jin and his team, every team that comes out of Korea um, has got playing talent. And 
you would think that they will compete well, but you know, they could, could go badly. <laughs> let's, you know, let's be honest. It's a, it's, as you say, new combinations and sometimes that doesn't come together and uh, other teams in the men's competition uh, New Zealand, Anton Hood, a young team, but a very talented young team, had success at World Junior B level. Australia, you've got uh, Dean Hewitt flo- throwing fourth. Uh, he's got Olympic experience in mixed doubles. Uh, Marcello Mello out of Brazil um, has been competitive at um, uh, America's Challenge level. Randy Shen from Chinese Taipei has been a perpetual contender at Pacific Asia Championships, has never made it to a world's. So, you know, out of the whole field of eight, um, places three through eight could be any of them. And uh, as I said, I think there's a realistic chance that uh, uh, the likes of a Chinese Taipei or an Australia or a New Zealand uh, could wind up sneaking into not only the top five, but maybe even the top three. So it's going to be a fascinating competition. Now, Hans, the alternate for Team New Zealand on the men's side is a man that you know well, uh, Peter DeBoer, who led New Zealand to a best-ever fifth-place finish at the World Championships a decade ago in 2012, uh, defeating some very good teams along the way that week. Uh, how big of an impact do you believe his presence will be on a young team, especially at an event where they have a legitimate shot, at the very least, of earning a spot in the World Championship? Oh, it's it's. Fantastic for New Zealand to have Pete DeBoer not only there as the alternate, but he's also uh, got the role of national coach in New Zealand. And he has been an inspiration for the next generation of young players like Anton, like Jess, uh, to develop and uh, and grow as players. And uh, they'll be hungry. Um, the, Anton's team, it's a young team. Having Peter there uh, with his experience um, but Peter also realizes that, you know, this is a young team uh, that has got the thing that Peter's always looking for in athletes is have they got the hunger, you know, have they got the um, drive to stick it out over the long haul and try to be the best. And he sees that in both the men's and the women's team and out of New Zealand. Um, Peter skipped, you know, the uh, you might recall, Frank, yeah. Uh, actually beat Glenn Howard in the round robin of the world championships that he competed in as a skip. And, and, so, and Thomas Olsrud. That was a pretty good week. <laughs> absolutely, it was. Made the playoffs and so, or, or made tiebreaker rather. So that's, it's it's really interesting that Peter's got the, taken the transition role to coach. We see so many players making that transition into coaching roles and uh, uh, Peter has been such uh, a driving force in the development of elite young athletes in New Zealand. He instituted a program is quite interesting. Uh, he calls it the New Zealand Overseas Curling Experience, where um, young competitive players get paired up um, with curling clubs in an overseas location, Canada or Sweden. They go over there, they live, uh, they work, uh, they curl. <laughs> and uh, players that have gone through that initiative that Peter set up um, have come back better players, more determined, more competitive so, yeah, Peter's been been a real positive force for curling in, in New Zealand. So as we speak, Hans, the five dominant countries in the new pan-continental region are clearly Canada, the United States, Japan, Korea, and China. From what you have been able to observe over the past few years, is there a country or two that may be positioning themselves to make a run at breaking into that top five group on a regular basis as opposed to a one-off where one of the second-tier countries simply play off the charts for a week or perhaps when one of the traditional powers might not be there, as is the case this season with China? No, that's a great question. I think, you know, in terms of 
countries that are sort of bubbling up next. Um, uh, Kazakhstan um, has got a lot of potential. Uh, they've got facilities. They've got good young players. And so that's that's a program to keep your eyes on. Um, the other thing, too, uh, you know, before we um, end this interview, I think we want to um, you know, put a shout out to all of the member uh, associations that are competing in the B events at, uh, at Pan Continentals, because there you've got some um, uh, member associations that are competing for the first time ever. And what we've seen is some of these um, nations can really develop quickly and get competitive quickly. So you've got in the women's division, you've got Kenya and Nigeria making their first ever uh, appearance at a international competition. In the men's competition, you've got India making its first uh, appearance at uh, an international competition. Now, is the Indian curling program going to catch fire and develop players of high skill very, very quickly? Too early to say. But, you know, is there the potential there for that? Absolutely. And then on the men's side, you've got eight countries competing in the in the B division. You've got Guyana, you've got Hong Kong, you've got India, Kazakhstan, Kenya, Nigeria, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. You know, the the palette of the uh, newer curling countries is is growing and growing. And that's part of the, uh, the real reason and the drive behind the pan-continental curling championships is to give these athletes a stage where they can compete, qualify for world championships. But when they're new arrivals on the stage, you're into a B division, you're playing teams, you're get, fighting for promotion to get up to the A division. And uh, that's going to, we believe, um, encourage their development as well, because they're going to be playing and having success. They're not going to get their brains beat in by super strong top tier teams in their first appearance, but they'll get a taste of competitive play and that'll spur them on to develop further. So I think there's all kinds of exciting potential for um, not only the teams like Kazakhstan and Taipei that are kind of there or really nearly there, but um, these uh, newer countries out of Africa, out of Asia, and uh, that's going to be really exciting to see them develop. And finally, Hans, I, I understand the idea of an A division and a B division, giving countries that are making their first few entries into a world championship curling event a chance to compete against other countries that are performing at the same level. That said, I wonder if there would be some value for these countries to play versus a Canada or a USA or a Japan at these events, because sometimes the best way to learn is to have an opportunity to observe how some of the best teams in the world go about working their way through a game, you know, to, to the ins and outs and nuances in their approach of these top teams. And, and that's not always easy to ascertain when you're watching a game on TV or streaming it online, or even sometimes when you're in the crowd. Sometimes when you're on the ice and you're standing next to a, a Brad Gushu or a uh, Tabitha Peterson, you will see some of these nuances and these little things that skips and teams at that level do in a game that you can then bring back to your country and share with your team and other curlers in your country to help you eventually take that next step. Yeah, well, I think what's what's happened now in the, with the Pan-Continental Curling Championships has kind of brought the rest of the world into line with what's already happened in Europe. So in Europe, uh, the European qualifier for World Championships um, the A division and the B division competitions have always been held in the same city at the same time. And so if you're playing in the B division in Europe, 
you're playing in the same competition as the teams from the A division. You're in the same city, you're staying at the same hotels, you're seeing all the players. And so you're part of the same competition. You're playing in a different division, but you're in the same competition with the same athletes. And I think the same thing is going to happen with the Pan Continental. So you've got an A division and a B division. You know, it's in the same city. It's being held at the same time. They're playing in the same competition. So, yeah, that's not the same as playing a game against uh, a top-tier team, but you're playing in the same ice conditions, uh, the same competitive conditions. You get a chance to talk to those uh, athletes in the in the other divisions, and you're playing in the same competition. And, you know, that is incredibly meaningful. And if you're in the B division and you know that um, your chance to play against the top-tier teams is to win the B division and you go get promotion to the A division – you know, that's going to inspire you to get better as a player. You know, that's going to become your goal. And that's what I believe is going to foster the competitive growth of the B division teams in the pan-continental region is they'll all want to get to the A division. It's the path to worlds. It's the chance to play the best teams. So I think just being in the atmosphere, being in the same competition venue on the same competition playing conditions it gives the athletes that taste of the big time. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Emma Miskew, Jean-Michel Menard, and Hans Franlob for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, the Rock Logic podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.